fast-paced quick one. Uh, <laughs> take two or three or four of those coins. Take 107. Ready? Man, you better shut your fuck up, okay? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Tipsy Tennis Podcast. I am your host, Adam Borak, and this is the show where we kick back, have a drink, and talk about tennis. Oh yeah. Today, for the very first episode, I am grateful to bring on a very good friend of mine. <laughs> she is a phenomenal, phenomenal tennis player, amazing person. She has uh, experience traveling around the world, playing some uh, pro tournaments, uh, played in college, did some coaching. I bring to you Sabrina Kierberg. Welcome. Thank you. Super excited to be on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started playing tennis? My mom started playing tennis first and I was four years old. And my dad ended up randomly putting one of the biggest rackets ever for a four-year-old in her hand. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And according to him, I don't know if this is true or not, but I was able to hit the ball very well and I swung very hard, made the ball go all the way to the baseline. So ever since then, I was hooked. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you grew I, up you grew up uh, in Florida. Florida, right? yes. I was born in Germany and moved from Germany to US at three years old, started playing tennis at four. Mm -hmm. And then ever since then, history. What was it like uh, growing up juniors playing in Florida? Um, Florida juniors, if you made it through, cheers. It was rough. Like, what do you, what do you mean survives? You know, yeah, good luck uh, if you survive. What, so, how, how do you survive in Florida tennis? <laughs> Tell us, please. Um, for juniors, uh, girls, I mean, what do you say? 16 and under, 18 and under. Yeah. Um, it was mentally very tough, not only with the opponent over the net, like taunting you with cheating, that's, yelling. That's one thing for guys, you would get into like your disagreements. You think the guy's cheating. You're like, nah, nah, nah. like I'm going to outplay you and and I'm going to win this match. Agreed. It was, it, it was it was much more like that. Girls, they take playing to the next level. Oh, they, we're they don't they don't play tennis with oh, you. They yeah. play some some other we, games. We with we you. play mind games and we enjoy it. You you, you enjoy it? <laughs> you enjoy, enjoy it. it? Do you <laughs> What what kind of mind games? Um I think us? boys tennis I always noticed it was very physical. It was sort of like, okay, you're being a jerk on the tennis court, that's fine. I'll outswing you, I'll outplay you. But girls tennis it was I will pass you by at the net post and call you names i will yeah yeah oh yeah the amount of times <laughs> you get cursed at just silently no one else hears it but you know cheating what cheating. kind of names <laughs> <laughs> we're tip we're, this is the tipsy tennis podcast we're not we're not, we're not trying to uh well you get the typical you're a effing bitch like b yeah. bitch was used a lot yeah oh yeah and then in Florida, it was a lot of Spanish words that I didn't really understand, but I would say one of my crazier stories for juniors was I played a match, the court was facing a parking lot. And I remember being on the other side of the court, so I was looking directly at the parking lot. And my opponent's mom got into her car and parked her car right in front of our court. And every time I would be at serve, Later at night, she would start blinking her lights straight at me. So every time I would toss my ball, 
to serve, I would be blinded. So I wouldn't be able wow. to see the ball. And that was one of the crazier things that people would do. The, pa the parents getting involved. Parents were involved all the time. Tennis parents are crazy. Crazy. Tennis parents are a different breed of parents. Oh no, they're, they're awful. I, I die on that hill. <laughs> Sorry. And I then forget. the amount of times that we ended up with uh, nails in our tires was... Nails? People put nails in your tires? Nails in our tires. And we knew because <clears throat> my dad would change the tire and it would be a brand new tire and suddenly we'd have maybe three or four tires, uh, three or four nails in our tire the day after a match. And Damn. we'd have that, we had that maybe three or four times mm -hmm. experience. So we wow. knew it was like something that was done intentionally. So you grew up in Florida. Yep. You played uh, pro tournaments. You're playing on the pro circuit for a little bit. You played in college as well. How did, uh, how did you make that transition? Like, um, luck. <laughs> so luck. luck. A lot of hard work. And some luck. And a and little, a little bit, of luck. bit of luck. I, my parents signed me up for a tournament when I was 14 and it was a women's open. And I didn't know it was a wild card tournament. And basically a wild card tournament is if you end up winning the tournament, you get a special access to play into a bigger tournament, like mm -hmm. a professional tournament at yeah. that time. And these wildcard tournaments are uh, a great way for lower ranked players to get into these higher ranked tournaments and, you know, yeah. ho hopefully, you know, break, break out you know, from of, those. Like a lottery tournament. Yeah. Basically. So, you, so at, a, at 14 years old, 14, you played a, a women's ITF pro tour wildcard tournament. Did mm -hmm. you win it? I did not win it. I made it all the way to the final, lost against the girl in the final, but- Wow, at, finals? Yeah. At 14. 14. And ended up getting a wild card anyway because I believe the director saw me play and had an extra wild card to give away. So uh -huh. I got lucky enough to get it. And it was my first pro tournament at 14 years old. Where, where was it? It was in Florida. I don't remember exactly where. But I know it was in Florida until I was 19 years old, mm -hmm. toured a lot around the U.S., um, went to different challenger tournaments there, um, went to one in Puerto Rico, went to a few in Tunisia, a few in Germany, Austria, and I think a lot of them was in Turkey as well. And toured for a good while and then ended up getting injured. So that's where I ended up moving towards college. What kind, what kind of injury? Um, Achilles tendon. Achilles tendon. Yeah. That's a bad one. I played D2 school called Nova Southeastern in Florida. Uh-huh. I was supposed to go to Syracuse D1 school, but since I played pros for too long after my graduation, I was not able to play D1 schools. So Completely, right? Yeah. Wow. So I think what do you think about that? What do you what do you think about the line NCAA draws for you know professional amateur players and 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 their development? Because like for you, you're 14 years old and you're playing a pro tournament. You're obviously not a pro, but because you have this track record, NCAA is is very strict about it. I know if you ever accept any kind of prize money that's above your uh, your travel expenses for that tournament, then you're considered a pro. Yeah. And then you lose any scholarship opportunities to play. So like what what do you think about that? I really have not thought about it, so I don't 
have much an opinion on that side. I just thought kind of sucks that I wasn't able to play D1, even though I had the skills to be very good in D1. Mm -hmm. And to be completely honest, D2 and the competition that was in D2 tournaments, because it was all of us pro players that were able to go to D1. That's true. It was the toughest competition ever. That's true. <laughs> so a lot of the girls that I knew that played D1 tennis were having a very easy time because it wasn't as competitive as D2 tennis. Every time we played Florida schools, I would end up playing, I was playing uh, number one on the team, so I'd end up playing girls that were ranked 300. In the world. 300 in the world. Wow. So, tough competition, and as soon as we got to schools that were more like Midwest or North, it was... It's a little bit easier? It was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a, a walk in Central Park, it was pretty. What, um, <laughs> did, did the, did the, does uh does the junior antics carry over into oh, college? Oh please, yes. Is it worse? It's worse because you it's college. They really don't yell at you much for kind of cursing on the court mm -hmm. as much as juniors. So there's I, a lot of screaming at each other, different sides of the That was one thing. I was always a fair player growing up. If somebody cheated me and I know they cheated me, the first time I kinda I usually let it let, let it, it slide. Yeah. Um but like if you know if it happened throughout the the match, yep. I was told retaliation call. Instead of cheating back, you know what I did? What? I walked up to the net and look them dead in the eyes and yell at them and be like, "Look, my guy, if you're gonna cheat, at least try to make it look convincing, <laughs> and don't call shots that are a foot in out." And I would like yell at them. I don't think they've ever had like an opponent like yell at them. And you know what happened after that? What? Shots that I hit out, they would call in. No, my because God. Because they were, they were afraid that I, I would uh, confront them about it again. Men's tennis. That would never happen in girls' tennis. Never. No, I would you hear. Would, you, would, you would, no, no, no. Screaming was normal. You would scream at the girl and tell her not to cheat anymore and she would look you dead in the eye and be like, yeah, sure, of course not. And cheat you 10 times worse. 10 times worse. I've, I've heard stories where like somebody would just kind of like bump the ball in like this in the middle of the box and yeah. the girl would just be like out. Yeah. You said you played in Tunisia. Mm -hmm. your, um, your parents are your, your mom. My mom's Tunisian. Tunisian. My your dad's dad is German. German. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about Jabber? Well, obviously. Wimbledon finals. I'm sure all the Tunisians out there are screaming at the top of their lungs sure. watching TV. I think good for her. Great. I mean, Jabir was, was a very household name when I was in Tunisia. My dad says that I apparently hit with her when I was younger. I've heard of that name a lot when I was playing tournaments there, so she was definitely a household name. Good for her. Good for Tunisia. They definitely need someone to root for. You said you played tournaments in Tunisia? I played in Monastir a lot. What's your impression of uh, Tunisian tennis? Not, people... not as popular as soccer. Soccer is number one? Soccer is number one over there. They're phenomenal fans of soccer. I think with Jaber coming on, I think tennis is going to pick up. Um, but of course, it's not like all European cities. They don't have the funds for the tennis courts. They don't have the equipment to keep it running. And we don't have the people that have the money to play tennis. It's a very wealthy sport over there. Yeah, So yeah. A, lot a lot of, of the barriers. tennis courts are empty when I go, whenever I go practice there. Mm -hmm. They're pretty empty, so. What are you doing now? I'm retired. Ex, ex pro, <laughs> ex. 
X D2 Pro X. Should have been D1 athlete. I mean, I was all American twice in college, so. I don't, I don't know what that means. Enlight, enlighten me. From my limited knowledge, I'm pretty sure all American is best stats within your conference. So we had the Sunshine State Conf, but correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not 100% sure about that. I got All-American twice and I was like, whoo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right now, I play tennis casually with anyone that that's good enough to hit. <laughs> that's good enough, there's, a, there's there are requirements. You gotta send your CV in advance and... Uh... It's interesting now, cause it's a, a lot of the tennis players that I know that grew up playing juniors with me, Either some of them are playing pros or and have made it, or some of them are just like me, have a regular job, no longer playing tennis. You coached a little bit as well, right? Yeah, it was fun. It was fun working with the little, the little munchkins. What piece of advice would you give for juniors trying to break out? What did you see from yourself and from your peers, what it takes to, to break out? Is it, is it luck? Is it hard work? Is it skill? Is it talent? Is it a good team? Is it all, is it all of the above? Is, where do you put the most weight? I would say, of course, it's all of the above. Um, but I would say keeping your mental attitude on point and playing tournaments. Every single weekend, play a tournament. Tournaments. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it's below your level, above your level, whatever it is, play a tournament. Why? Why tournaments? Why not practice? Because when you practice, you're loose, you're relaxed, you're, no one's really putting any pressure on you. But when you're practicing, no one's putting any pressure on you. But when you're playing a tournament, there's a lot of pressure there. Pressure to win, pressure to perform, especially if you're playing a tournament that's like below your caliber. You obviously think in your head that you have to win this. If I would have played more tournaments in my whole career. You would have been, you would have replaced Jabber for first Tunisian woman. In I don't, I really, <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know that. That would have been nice. Would have been nice. I think for a lot of tennis girls now who played juniors, it's kind of disheartening to watch pros because it's all the girls that you grew up with like, it's disheartening for you eh, oh yeah it's uh monica puig i used to practice with her she was like a close friend of mine when i was young the osaka girls her and her sister used to be in tournaments with me danielle collins used to play juniors with me jessica pergula who's playing u.s open people don't realize how expensive the, it is the, yeah the difference between a, a tennis professional and any other profession like most not any but most other professional sports especially team sports if you get recruited by a team you play for that team the team usually has a facility that you, you train you have a bunch of teammates that you know you could always you know tap in and out and then you know that half of your games are going to be home and half of your games are going to be away and when you're away the team also takes care of it for tennis zero percent of the tournaments are home except for maybe once a year the other 51 you know 50 weeks out of the year is travel very expensive you're you're traveling you're paying for hotels or apartments or you know you're paying for your team you're paying to, for meals every you're not you don't always have a kitchen so you're constantly ordering out is always more expensive you, you need to have some sort of diet yeah you can't be eating mcdonald's every no. single day the flights and everything uh do you feel like do you feel like you had the means to do it no i mean my dad was basically my sponsor and he 
he paid was... so much money just to have me travel and it would be two thousand dollars per tournament per tournament pro tournament how much would you get for let's say winning uh one of the lower level tournaments a grand for winning for winning the tournament yeah so it it cost you about two thousand dollars per tournament and if you won it best case scenario you got a thousand mm-hmm. how is that sustainable well <laughs> i mean it's that's <laughs> that's the name of the game it's not sustainable unless you have you know you have the means or you you're picked up by a country um i know osaka what do you mean picked up by a country so i know osaka she played for us before she she switched up to play for japan yeah. so if you're good enough and you had like a good enough ranking and you had like a background let's say a passport you could be picked up by that country so so the government is paying is sponsoring it or who? well it's it's the tennis association so, like, so it's like usta for us players ah uh, okay and then it's the association forever for whatever okay. other country uh, country now i have a friend i met him in india from a for a wedding mm-hmm. and it was like a whole tennis community he's actually in employee or i don't know how you put it but he's in the indian army wow he's in the army and his job for being in the army is to represent the army in tennis tournaments interesting so they have in india they have they have like a few tournaments throughout the year where it's like army versus navy versus air force like that kind of, like mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. stuff and he just needs to he needs to represent you know the army in in in, in those sense in those times he was like number 3 in india at some point out of a billion people which uh pretty impressive I, three sounds a little bit too high i'm sorry if I, if i'm underestimating you kaza <laughs> but uh <laughs> if i remember correctly it was that but it's also india you don't hear too, like you have you have some like some players that come out of it like leander pays arguably the best doubles player in history came out of india you have samdev devarman bopana you have you have a few people they don't get too much rep Yeah. On the pro tour. It's actually very interesting to see how different countries organize their tennis associations. Mhm. You know who's very different? France. I spent when I was uh 16, 17 years old, I spent a month in France for an academy. The interesting thing with France, the way they run their their tennis is they have a rating system. And what that means is instead of having one number 1, one number 50, one number 100, a bunch of people have the same rating. how is that you know how is that useful the way they structure their tournaments is also very different how they do it over here in us for example you, let's say you just you sign up for a tournament and it's a flat draw yeah you have the f- number 1 seed at the top the t- number 2 seed on the bottom you spread out the seeds and then everything else is random and if you get unlucky and you play the first seed of the tournament and you lose 0 and 0 and you're done in an hour you go home and you spent like 100 bucks to play this tournament and it's just like a waste of time and a and a waste of money the way they do it over there is because it's not based on ranking it's rather on rating they kind of have like a slanted draw rather than a flat draw and so you're looking at it like this where the lower rated players start earlier in the tournament and they're all grouped together and so your first round or two is always guaranteed somebody either one rating below the same rating or one rating above oh interesting and so you're guaranteed you're pretty much guaranteed good like competitive match and if you want to win if you want to win a tournament if you want to be you know a champion You got to beat everybody. It doesn't matter where you are in the draw, you got to go through everybody. 
True. But in terms of development, you're usually you're you're usually playing a few matches per tournament, and 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 you can kind of bank on that. The lower rated players play earlier in the tournament, and so to, for somebody like that, a low rated player to win the entire tournament is going to take like 30 matches. Because they do it this way, so let's say this tournament starts June 1st, all the lower rated players are going to start on June 1st, and let's say you're in the middle of the pack, you're not going to start playing the tournament until June 15th until oh. halfway through, you know, let's say it's wow. a month. The tournaments are like a month long because of how many people they have and the rating system that they go through. And so if you're a high rated player, you're going to join, you know, later on, you're going to start like round of 64, let's say, instead of round of a thousand. And so it's much better for the for the development in it. And, and I love that. And it's not a coincidence that the French, like the French have the best players in the world. If you look at the top 100, the top 200, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they're number one in uh, top 100 players. And you know what I loved about it as well? After every match, it's a French tradition. The winner yeah. offers the loser a drink. The French, they're, they're social, they hug, they kiss, they, all, that, all that stuff. The winner, as a condolence, however you want to put it, will offer the loser a drink. You sit, you talk for 10, 15 minutes, whatever, and then you guys split off. It breeds a better culture for tennis. Like it's more gauging, you know? Yeah. I remember in juniors, there was always like the death stare. You know, you know what I'm talking about when you walk into like a tennis center lobby where everybody's just kind of like looking at you and, yeah. and like the parents are even giving you the death stare. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. How are you improving, you know, the community like that? Yeah, but I think that's the difference between European tennis and US tennis. Well, to top off this episode of the Tipsy Tennis Podcast, let's bring it to a close with my surprise guest for today. The very own Daniel Medvedev. Man, you better shut your fuck up, okay? Daniel, Daniel. Hey, Stefanos, you want to look at me and talk? Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. You have some problems? You go emergency toilet for Daniel, five Daniel. minutes during, and then you say, and you, then you hit left and you don't say sorry, you think you're a good kid? Look at me. Daniel, hey, look at me, huh? Daniel. You don't look Daniel. at me. He started it. He started it. I know, but stop it. He started it. Yes, but. Yes, he started it. Think this is normal? I answer him because he doesn't know how to fight. He's a small kid who doesn't know how to fight. If he doesn't say anything, I have no problems with him. But if he says something to me and he wants to fight, he needs to do it. He doesn't look at me. 